This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Independent news commentary with a California perspective featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 12, Episode 9, The Wife, starring Glenn Close and Jonathan Price. Talking with Sean Chang from the movie and TV blog, Hill Place. As noted American novelist Joe Castleman travels to Sweden to receive the Nobel Prize for Literature, his wife and literary collaborator Joan, Glenn Close, faces her husband's success with mixed emotions. Castleman, played by Jonathan Price, is basking in the global adulation, but the strains and secrets of almost 40 years of marriage and literary success begin to unravel. Sean walks us through this complex film, and in particular, Glenn Close's portrayal of Joan Castleman. Hi, Sean, and welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Jim. Thanks for having me back, and and thanks also to your listeners for allowing me to come back. Uh, The Wife is a movie that came out in the summer of 2018, August 2018, if I recall. It it got uh, mostly very positive reviews from the critics. They recognized it as a really thoughtful, character-driven drama with uh, two particularly powerful performances in in the center of the movie. As you mentioned, Glenn Close is Joan Castleman and Jonathan Price is uh, Joe Castleman. I think, you know, however, that some people might have uh, taken it for granted with that title, The Wife. Some people thought it was a, probably a, a, a really un- uninspired or dull lifetime TV type of drama. But, you know, for audiences that have uh, given it a chance, if they've come across it on, on cable or on Netflix, I think a lot of my friends who've seen it have said that they found it a very pleasant experience, a pleasant surprise. The Wife, just on the surface, seems like it's the kind of movie that's geared towards upper middle class. East or West Coast elites, West Coast elites, excuse me. But I've had friends who are more working class people and, and people of various different ethnicities who've come to me to say how much they enjoyed it. And I particularly remember uh, one friend, and she and she's you know working class as well. And she and her husband caught it on cable, and you know she told me later her husband was so caught up in the storyline, Jim, that she that he was talking to her, asking her questions like, what, "What's going on there?" And she would keep shushing him, saying, "Shush, <laughs> let me watch the movie." So I, I say this because you know on the surface, like I said, some people took it for granted, made assumptions about it, but it's that kind of drama that once you get started, within five minutes, it grabs you, and you're with it all the way to the end. What did you think of the movie, Jim? I thought it was fascinating. The at the core of the film is this is the marriage between mm-hmm. Joe and Joan. Mm-hmm. And like all marriages, it's it's complex. There mm-hmm. are there are secrets involved. And in this particular marriage, the secret explodes into public view in the in the end of the film at the most the most sensitive moment when he's about to receive the when he has received the Nobel prize for for literature from the king of sweden it's a very poignant story about a career unfulfilled namely joan's career as a writer it's poignant also because of the the duplicity the secrecy that the two of them have maintained in this marriage to to the outside world to say nothing of his multiple affairs during the marriage. So like all marriages, very complex. So that's why I think that that universal 
theme of the complexity of marriage, the secrets, but the the glue that holds these two people together through their ups and downs and affairs and all the rest of it does hold them together. But that glue seems to fall apart at the end of the film. I think it raises an interesting point, and I think that probably addresses what I just said a second ago, that the movie seems like it's geared towards, like I said, West Coast elites, but it really, as I found talking to people, it's really touched a nerve with people from a variety of different backgrounds, both economic and, as I said, you know, both economic and ethnic backgrounds. A lot of people have responded to it in a way that I, I, I find wonderful and inspiring. I think, uh, I mean, uh, we better give a spoiler warning in terms of because otherwise we're just going to be talking in circles around what the you know secret in that marriage is. But ultimately, what's revealed in the course of the story, and this is a spoiler, you know, Joe Castleman, who's this acclaimed novel. Novelist. I mean, I would say that he's a novelist that's sort of like a, a Philip Roth or John Cheever type novel novelist who mm-hmm. is is incredibly acclaimed, but also at the same time both respected, acclaimed, but also you know success in terms of being a bestseller, uh, bestselling novelist. He doesn't really write his novels. We learn in the course of the story that he's the one that didn't really have the talent, but that Joan Castleman was the one that had the talent, and she's the one that's really writing the book. These all the books that the, that he's winning the award for. You know, originally when I went into the movie, I had different expectations out of the storyline. Uh, I thought the movie was really based on the title. And from what I uh, could tell from the trailer, the story of they, they used it, that expression behind every great man, there's a great woman. Yes. I thought it was going to be that kind of a story, that he's this great, talented author and that she's been the unappreciated wife the whole time who's been loyal but has not fulfilled her life. And then we find out in the course of the story, he's really allowed herself to take a back seat writing the books and letting him take the credit for it. When I saw it in the theater, I had mixed feelings about that uh, plot twist. I didn't know if that was melodramatic or if it was a plot twist that was earned. But having seen the film through the years, that plot twist I feel is earned because, and I'll tell you why I think it's earned and why I've grown to like it, is if it was, if the premise of the movie really was what I expected it to be, that she was the long-suffering wife who basically was taking care of the home and the family and he wrote the books, then that really would have made uh, Glenn Close's character, Joan, into a victim. But by making her the person that really was the brains behind the operation, she's not a victim. She's someone who has made a decision in her life that now later in her life she deeply regrets, but she's an active participant in it. And I think by not making her a victim, but more of an active participant, it it shows respect for her character by not uh, being condescending or denigrating her and making her seem like she had no choices. She made a choice. It just was not the right one Mm -hmm. in the long run. Now, when the film opens in 1958 at Smith College, where she's a freshman and Joe Castleman is her literature, creative writing professor, if you will, of course, you have to cast your mind back to the role, the professional constraints that were placed on women at that time in 1958, number one. And number two, that Joan Castleman was actually, she was a a rather shy, somewhat self-effacing person and didn't Mm -hmm. didn't really have the a bullion self-confidence to drive through all the discrimination that women faced at that time. And mm-hmm. a little later in the film, they show after she's graduated, she has a job as a secretary in a publishing house and the publishing house is completely dominated by men, both the, the editors, the publishers, the publicists, the marketers, they're all men. And 
she doesn't fight against that because that wasn't that wasn't accepted. But she she overhears a conversation that they're looking for a Jewish male writer. Light bulb. You can see the light bulb going off in her head, and she says to the editor, "I think I may have someone that would fit that bill." She goes mm-hmm. home and tells her husband about this, and then they collaborate on the book, and then that book, The Walnut, becomes the becomes his first his her first bestseller. But but you know it's interesting throughout the 30 plus years of this collaboration she subsumes her own ambition to that of her husband. Mm-hmm. But I guess the the frustration of it in the end is it's, it's almost like a an, an explosive end where she can't take it anymore. And t- talk to me about that because she's lived with this subsuming of her own ambition for mm-hmm. 30 some years and it's in in the the emotion of in the end when they get that call from at four o'clock in the morning from uh, Stockholm telling them that Joe has won the Nobel Prize for Literature that it all begins to unravel and that's essentially what the it's, it's that unraveling of the secret which is the which of course is the the core of the film well, I, I do want to clarify, when the movie opens, it opens in the early 90s when they're they're getting that phone call from the Nobel organization. And throughout the movie, we flash back to the 1950s, allowing us an opportunity to see you know, where both characters started. So I don't want to confuse the audience if they see the movie and they don't see it starting in the 1950s. But nevertheless, all the key points and all the themes that you raised you know, are very on point in terms of what her character experiences in the course of the story. When she blows up later in the story, when they're in Stockholm, and he's received the Nobel Prize and and all of you know all of her feelings have risen to the surface. After seeing the film several times through the years, yes, she's angry at him for I think probably having taken her for granted through the years, but she's also angry at herself. And I think that's the part of the story that I think is equally powerful. And what I mean in terms of why she's not a victim. If she's a victim of circumstances of outside influences, then that would make the character not so interesting. But the fact that she's also, you know, upset with herself for the choices that she's made, it makes it makes her character very well rounded and very human. I do want to make a point of uh, mentioning that the young version of Joan Castleman is played by Glenn Close's daughter, an actress named Annie Stark, and she's magnificent playing the younger version of of Glenn Close's character. When I saw her in the movie, I just felt that this is one of those instances, the child of of an accomplished star is earning that role, you know, on merit. She's fantastic in that role, and that casting was just just spot-on perfect, and I think Annie Stark proved in that role she's a terrific actress, and I look forward to seeing what what she has to offer us in the future. Uh, what What did you think about the performance I thought, to, let's come back to their son. Uh, the Castlemans mm-hmm. have two children. They yes. have a, a son, David, who is an aspiring writer himself, and he accompanies yes. his parents to Stockholm for the, uh, the ceremony. And their daughter, their younger daughter, she stays back in Connecticut. She's nine months pregnant. She's about to have a child, so she can't come to the ceremony. The relationship between Castleman and David and also Glenn Close and David is a very complex one because he begins to suspect that in fact it was his mother who was writing these novels and then there is a kind of a scandal oriented biographer who's trying to write Castleman's biography who confronts both Glenn Close and David the son with this with this theory 
that in fact Joe Castleman has been a fraud, if you will, and that the the only writer in the family has been Joan Castleman, Glenn Close. So that there's a complex relationship there between father and son. Mother mm-hmm. is the the mother obviously is closer to the son. So there's I, I thought I thought his his role was very well acted also. Oh yes, I agree. I agree, and I think it it, it kind of you know delves into that notion of the child of somebody who's an accomplished artist or accomplished professional always feels that sense of wanting to live up to what what their parent had uh, you know had accomplished in their lifetime I thought they, that they portrayed that very well and and the, so those scenes between the son and the father were, were really quite moving but at the same time quite painful to watch as well Joan makes it very clear to Joe that mm-hmm. he is not to thank her in his speech accepting the Nobel Prize. She wanted him to make any public reference to her as having worked with him on his books. He, of course, gets up on the stage, and he gets up on the stage, and he he does exactly what she has forbidden him from doing. Uh, <laughs> yes. And he gets up there, and he profusely thanks her. And the spotlight literally and figuratively goes to Joan, who's sitting at the uh, the banquet table with the king and queen of Sweden. She's sitting there with them, and you can see the discomfort, the squirming in the seat. The it's you you can you can see her anguish as the spotlight is focused on her, and he's going through this encomium of praise about his wonderful wife, and yes. she is his muse, and all the rest of it. Yes, and and I guess she just overwhelmed with anger. He comes back to the table to kiss her on the cheek, and she furiously gets up to leave. And t- talk about that part of it, because that is the critical moment of the film. They exit the banquet hall, and she's furiously angry with him. Talk to me about that part of the film. I think she's upset with him because she asked him not to do something. He did it anyway. And I think one of the reasons why she's so upset is, is that throughout the marriage, throughout the film, you see that he's the one who basically has, in essence, called the shots throughout the marriage. He's the one who's basically kind of, you know, run the show the whole time. And like I said, not that she's a victim, because obviously she has, you know, written the book, so she's contributed to this circumstance, but he's never really listened to her in terms of what her needs are. I, the thing about Jonathan Price is he's an excellent actor, but I've never really been a fan of him, because there's always a quality that he has on screen, and, and, and forgive me for saying this, you know, for people who love him, and maybe if he's ever listening to this podcast but he has a quality in the roles he plays where he, he just sucks the air out of the room that tends to be his specialty in terms of the kinds of roles he plays at least that's my perception and in this character of joe castleman he finds the ultimate character that sucks the air out of the room he's just the person that everything is completely about him at, at, at every moment and I think maybe she, maybe that's one of the reasons why she married him. Because since she's uncomfortable being in the spotlight, yes. it, it was, it was, it was easier for her to be married to somebody who could very comfortably be in the spotlight. But I think she reached a point where she realized he's so much in the spotlight that he's really taken for granted everything she's brought to the marriage. So I think that's why her anger to him, towards him, isn't just this one-dimensional. You took all the credit away from me. It's, it's a very complicated kind of thing that is on multi levels. I think yes, it's, it is the fact that. You know, he took credit for books that she wrote, but it's also due to the fact that his his entire he's the kind of person 
that it wakes up in the morning and thinks that the sun rises and sets around him. And at a certain point, I think she just got tired of it. I think that's what leads to that huge blow up argument where she storms out of the banquet hall, you know, when, you know, for all the Nobel Bell uh, officials and all the Nobel, you know, honorees. She just doesn't want to be part of that anymore. And she was uncomfortable to begin with. You know, I think what's great about Glenn Close's performance is, is that she's very subtle. The character is very subtle. The, ca- the um, character, the, you're right. The character is very subtle, and it, it's also a, a reflection of the the shyness, the self-effacing qualities of this woman. And they they then get in the car. They actually have an altercation in the limousine, and he offers her the Nobel medal. She doesn't want it. And then he opens the car window and he throws it out of the limousine. Yeah, yeah. I, which, which I, there's a, a comic element to it. And of course, the chauffeur drives back and finds it and picks it up, etc. But uh, the, it's, it's a comic, but melodramatic and sad at the same time. You know, we're talking about you know melodrama. There's another scene earlier in the movie where she suspects that he has been flirting with this a photographer, a female photographer that the Nobel organization has assigned to follow around and take pictures of him. And they're having a, a huge blowout argument. In the middle of the argument, they get a phone call from their daughter. I think her name is Susanna. And Susanna has given birth back in the United States to their grandchild. And suddenly, you know, the rage and anger that they had suddenly gets set aside and they very overcome with joy at at hearing uh, the the sounds of their grandson over the phone and and it's it, i found that scene very moving and i found that scene towards the end of the film where they're having an argument and then in the middle of the argument something happens to joe that causes you know her to snap back into the nurturing mode of taking care of him and you see that despite all of their conflicts, despite all of their differences, they've got a bond that's kept them together all these years. You know, there's a deep love there. So I think that's why I really appreciated the movie because, you know, I, as with life and experiences and relationships and marriages, you know, there is nothing is nothing is one dimensional and, and all things are, you know, on different levels and whatever have you. I, like I said, I, I thought, I thought the movie was great and I thought she was great because she had to be subtle for about uh, the first three quarters of the movie subtle i mean it's not a role where she's screaming and crying every single scene and she's basically you know been given these go for broke moments by the screenwriter that allows you know, her to show the audience look at me i'm acting i'm acting can't you see <laughs> no, nothing like that she's just being a like a like a believable real person and it's only towards the end that she does have a go for broke moment when she's having an argument with him but she even then you know she doesn't overdo it she she knows just the right levels to play it where joan castleman remains a real human being throughout the whole throughout the whole movie i thought she was great and i i thought she deserved the oscar that year i everyone expected her to win jim and she didn't win and that was one of the biggest oscar upsets in recent memory and that was just you know i remember the night she didn't win i just was like I wasn't pleased by it, but it is what it is. Well, it, let's let's talk about that because she has had Glenn Close has had a long and very varied career. She's played mm-hmm. roles that she's played Cruella Deville. She's she was in Fatal Attraction. She has mm-hmm. played many different kind of roles that have tested her. She was in a, a horror film, uh, so she's played a many many different roles. She seems to have mm-hmm. fun with her career, and she's takes risks with her career. Let's let's talk about that career because you're right. It was a surprise. It was a shock that she didn't win the the Best Actress award. Talk to me about that. Let's talk about her career. I'll say this. I think the reason why she didn't win 
is because she's one of our greatest actresses here in the United States. Uh, I think I, I think it's fair to say one of our greatest actresses in the world. But I think to some degree, she's so good in her roles and so real and believable that to some degree, I think she might still be taken for granted. I Like I said, even when she plays a character like Alex in Fatal Attraction, which is, you know, an obsessive, an obsessive woman who, you know, has, you know, mental health issues. She knows how far to take it without the character becoming a, a campy caricature. And when, when an actress is that real, like I said, it's easy for the audience to take that person for granted. One thing that I've, I've always admired and respected about her, well, several things, but, but one of the key things is, is that she's always diversified and had a very eclectic career, a very well-rounded career. And what I mean by that is she's done everything. She continues to do theater. Even after her success in films, she you know, has frequently gone back to the theater. She never gave up her roots. In terms of television, she didn't just do cable prestige dramas. She often did network television, TV movie productions through the years that showed that she wasn't a snob about the medium of television. I really respect that about her because I have a great respect for television. And in terms of films, she's done a variety of different, variety of different kinds of films. And what I mean by that is, I like to joke, she's done films that uh, regular people have seen. Um, she's played Corel Deville twice in the 101 and 102 Dalmatians movies. Fatal Attraction, underneath all of that character study, is still basically a suspense thriller, and that was a huge hit for her. She did science fiction comedies like Mars Attacks, where she played the first lady crushed under a falling chandelier. She played the vice president in the action film Air Force One. And then she played um, in, an, in, in a superhero movie, Guardians of the Galaxy. I think because of the fact that, and, and there's a really wonderful video on YouTube. If the listeners are listening to it, it's a video that Vandy Fair put together where she does a timeline of her career and goes mm -hmm. through all the different films. And I think I may have shown it to you, Jim. Yes. She admits that her career, she's had a very good career. So I'm not trying to suggest that she hasn't had a good career. She's had a very, very good career and continues to have a good career. But she admits she's not the person that gets offered the best roles you know, right away. That, that and, and without stating it, she didn't state it, but I think most people can pretty much assume, you know, that the person that gets offered the best roles up front is is Meryl Streep. And because she isn't the person that gets the best roles up front, in a weird way, that's freed her to just be adventurous in, in terms of her choices. Like I said, she does all different kinds of movies, um, all different kinds of genres. There was an interview she gave a couple of years ago and she had come out with a movie that was shot in England that was a zombie horror thriller and she played a scientist in it. She was talking about it in relation to promoting this movie that we're talking about today, The Wife, and she said that that movie came up because her agent made a passing comment on the phone well, I know you didn't, you're not interested in doing a zombie picture. And she stopped him and said, well, wait a minute. How do you know I wouldn't want to send it to me to read? And she read it and liked it and did it. And I really respect that. It means that she's not a snob. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's it's that fact of, you know, being open to whatever opportunities come her way and looking at each job at face value and it finding if, if she finds something that she thinks will be fun and interesting, she'll do it. I, I don't want to get too much into this, but the reason I much prefer Glenn Close's career and her acting over Meryl Streep is with Streep, I always get the feeling that she's every choice she makes with every role is a calculated choice to maintain a certain level of stature and prestige. Mm -hmm. And even if, if Meryl Streep does a movie like, let's say, Mamma Mia or what's that thing called? 
where she played the fashion editor that's really mean oh, and I'm blanking the, out. The Devil Wears Prada or something. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Devil Wears Prada. Even when that's happening, that feels like a calculated move to almost make a statement to the public. See, I can I can get down to your <laughs> level and do entertaining movies too. Look at what I'm doing for you, you know? So so with what's close, I don't feel that calculation. I feel like each time she does a role, she feels it's something that she'll enjoy and that, you know, the audience will enjoy, but not calculated to try to prove anything to anybody but, but except to herself so i that's why i think she's great and i think that's why her career will continue to prosper you know i i I hope she'll win the oscar someday at this point she deserves it she should have won it for fatal attraction let's be honest or she should have won it fatal attraction or um uh, dangerous liaisons but you know i'm also i'm also thinking that you know she's been nominated so many times and hasn't won it it might be almost like a weird kind of quirky thing. It might be more of an honor for her not to win it. Just just keep getting nominated more than anyone else, you know, and, and keep doing great work. That might be actually a greater honor, you know. So I, I think the world of her. And the last thing I'll simply say before I'll hand it back to you is there was an interview done by another actress who was the lead in a James Bond movie, Tanya Roberts. And she said uh-huh. that she was reluctant to take that offer of being the leading lady in a James Bond movie, but her agent convinced her to do it by saying something like Glenn Close would do a James Bond movie if she could. And the great thing about Glenn Close is when I read that quote, I thought, you know what? I think the agent wasn't just wasn't just being you know, hyperbolic. I think that's true. If there was a, if a James Bond movie was being offered to Glenn Close and it was a part she'd like, she'd do it because do that's it. the kind of she'd do it. She that's the kind of person yeah. she is. She's open for every opportunity, and that's why she remains one of our great great actresses. And I look forward to what she continues to bring us. Fact to you. Sorry about that. Now let's come back. Let's come back to the closing moments of the wife, Be- yeah. because that's again spoiler alert. The film has been out for four years. Of course, anybody can rent it on DVD or what have you. So let's talk about that closing moment because it's a very, it's a sad moment. It's a moment of, it's a moment of deep pathos. Talk to me about that closing moment and, and what that meant to you. What moment in particular? You mean when he has a heart attack and he, passes away in he, front of her? He has, he has the heart attack. She calls mm-hmm. down to the front desk. They send mm-hmm. uh, the EMTs up to the room, and she's, she's sort of left. They, they take over trying to re- revive mm-hmm. him, and she's, she's lost. She's, she's lost. And the unraveling of this, this 30, 40-year secret, it's over. It's ended. Now she can mm-hmm. be her own woman, but on the, by the same token, she's lost this she's lost her husband i think in more than that just that scene when he's passed away and she's witnessing that he's passed away is that scene the the epilogue when she's on the um on the concord flight back to the united states and the and the and christian slater who plays the writer writing the biography of the husband comes to talk to her and she tells him under under no uncertain terms that if he ever tries to write something in the book that implies she really wrote the books and and maligns his um literary reputation and literary talent she would sue him i thought that was really like interesting because on the one hand she tells her son a moment later that she will tell uh, both him and his sister when they get back to all get back to the united states the truth of what's going on but on the other hand she makes it clear she doesn't want his reputation maligned i've often tried to figure out what that meant exactly but i think ultimately what that means at the end of the day is it's not meant to say that his reputation was more important than her self-respect i think it really was a moment where she's very vulnerable her husband just died and no matter what happened she loved him and she was not in a place 
where she even wanted to consider somebody was going to disrespect who her husband was. Mm -hmm. So I think at the end of the day, she's one of those people that she still had her husband's back no matter what happened. The part that was really moving to me actually was the final, not the final shot, the final shot is the plane flying off into the distance at the end. But it's the shot right before that where she opens up her notebook and she turns the page and there's a blank page, you know, in front of her and her and her fingers kind of kind of touch the page. And I think what it means is, is that she's opening up a new a new future, a new horizon for her where she's going to start writing under her own name mm-hmm. and she's going to basically be true to herself. So I, I thought that it was a it was both a tragic ending, but an ending also filled with a lot of hope for the future in terms of what in terms of what the future brings. I mean, I've always been curious when, when movies end and I really like the storyline. I'm always curious what happens next. I don't necessarily think we need a, a sequel the wife part two. I'm not necessarily <laughs> saying that, but it does make me wonder what what happens when does she tell does, when she tells her children does it end up becoming public knowledge does she have to give it back the nobel prize do uh, publishers get mad at her do people doubt her story and think she's just trying to capitalize on her husband i i that's the thing about great fiction great fiction no matter if it's a book or a play or a television show or a film if the characters really touch you then you're still thinking about it long after the story's ended Mm -hmm. sean in the remaining few moments of the podcast do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners oh my the closing thoughts i have is the fact that uh, going back to the Oscars, some people say that one reason why she did not win the Oscar is because some people who were voting members of the Academy may have been turned off by the movie because it was called The Wife. And like I alluded to earlier, they may have misinterpreted it and thought that it was a, a lifetime uninspired drama. But like I said before, it really is a very compelling storyline and very compelling film it's that kind of movie like i said once you get started with it you get pulled into it and you're with it the whole way i i really hope um, audiences who haven't seen it yet will really give it a chance and find all the pleasures and rewards that the film has to offer i I think it's an excellent movie and you know one of her best parts and uh, like i said i hope it just means that a sign of even greater work for her to come as you know in in the future but but that's the thing it's it's an excellent movie and i i hope i hope people who have have not seen it yet uh, give it chance. Well, Sean, thank you very much once again for being our guest today. Looking forward to having you back at the end of February, which will be the beginning of Oscar season. So our February program will obviously get tee up our listeners for for the March Oscar award. So once again, Sean, thanks for being with us and look forward to talking with you again next month. As always, thank you for having me on your show. And once again, thanks to your listeners for letting me come on the show, for their patience and listening to my opinions on on movies and television. Like I said, these are just my opinions, and the fact that you're taking the time to actually consider what I have to say means a lot to me. Well, thank you, Sean. And for my listeners, please take a moment to visit the website at www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com to subscribe. It's free and easy to do so, and by subscribing, all future episodes will come directly to your inbox. And make sure to take a look at the 233 past episodes that are conveniently arranged in 14 easy-to-access categories. And feel free to rate the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.com. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.